We started last week a new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've never read Ecclesiastes, you might find it an interesting book because so many times you just read it and you think, well, what is the author who calls himself the preacher, Kohelet, which is the Hebrew word, uh, and he is probably Solomon. What is he trying to get at here, especially when he tells us that all of life is vanity? And we saw last week that by vanity, he meant there was a, a futileness to the things that we do But he qualifies it with that phrase, under the sun, meaning life in this present world. There's a a, a futileness to it. There's a, a rhythm to it as we try to find meaning and purpose. But God in his wisdom offers us life above the sun because he is from above the sun. And he sends in his son who is not of this world, but born into this world, who condescended who came down, took on flesh, and lived this same life under the sun that we live so that He might redeem us and give us hope. And this morning we continue this exploration of trying to understand this life under the sun that we live as written by Solomon the preacher. So our sermon text, if you have a Bible or a sermon app, it begins in... or. Bible app. It begins in Ecclesiastes 1 and verses 12 through all of chapter 2. This is God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them uh, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before seen, uh, seen before in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me 
Whatever my eyes desired, I did not and what keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward of all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has in his eyes, uh, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then? Have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? For the, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the truth that it teaches us. Give us understanding then by your spirit. Give us the words of life that come only from your mouth. And let us hear then your voice as it proclaims your truth. And may we see Christ our Lord, who is our salvation. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The 17th century philosopher and scientist Pascal once said that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end, the cause of some going to war and of others to avoid it. It is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive for every action in every man. And indeed, 
If we were to ask most people on the street, if you were just to go to ask them what they want most out of life, they might have different ways of expressing it, but ultimately what they're telling you is, I just want to be happy. I want to have enjoyment in this life. It's why they do what they do and live the way they live and make the choices and decisions they make. They crave happiness. For indeed, we were created by God to enjoy life, to enjoy life through Him. But if we desire happiness, if we crave this and all people pursue it, why does it seem so elusive? Why does it seem we really can't lay hold upon it? And even as Christians, we who believe, who trust the gospel, we may find ourselves asking the question, does happiness in this life really even matter? Because I know there is a promise of a new creation, a new heavens. I know there is joy to be found in Christ. Is that all I should be looking for? Or should I actually desire and to enjoy this life and to be happy now? Are we supposed to enjoy this life? Or simply wait for the joy that is promised us? These are questions the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, explores in our text here this morning. And he explores these kinds of questions because he is continuing his search for purpose, for meaning in life. He wants to see if there is any sense in this senseless world under the sun. Or is everything merely an exercise in futility till the day we die? You see, this pursuit of happiness... And enjoyment is ultimately a pursuit of purpose and meaning. And so the preacher decides to put some tests out to see, can I make myself happy? And in in that happiness itself, can I find purpose and meaning? And so first he pursues happiness and purpose in knowledge and in learning. And so he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And there's that little phrase again, under heaven or under the sun. As I say, our present life in this earth. And he's committing himself with full commitment. He says, I'm applying, I'm putting my whole heart, the core of all that I am, my mind, my will, my understanding, my emotions to seek and to search, to explore and to learn and to understand everything that is done in life on this earth. I want all the knowledge, all the education I can get to see if that leads to some measure of happiness and thus some measure of understanding and purpose. And not only is he committed in this pursuit of knowledge, But he tells us he's very thorough, too. He says he is pursuing this wisdom in all, all that is done under the sun. He wants to leave no stone unturned and try to figure out all of it and understand how this world works. And his assessment initially is he feels he's been pretty successful 
in this pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That little word experience is important because it's cluing us into the kind of wisdom and knowledge he is talking about here. You see, the Bible does mention wisdom often, especially in the books of wisdom. There is a whole genre of wisdom literature. And often in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is elevated. It is put on a high pedestal because that wisdom talked about in Proverbs is the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of of God. This wisdom that the preacher is talking about, the one that he is pursuing, trying to find happiness in, is a little different. It is an experiential wisdom that one has and gains from growing and living in this world and trying to learn. It is that wisdom that you associate with the human mind that explores and wants to learn. It is also the wisdom that comes from just the ups and downs and experiences of life, the kind of wisdom that grandma and grandpa give to you on the front porch. It is that kind of wisdom. Now, wisdom, though, even this experiential wisdom does speak and is associated with the choices and decisions that we make in our lives and the need to avoid irresponsibility through just open and wild living. And so the preacher then distinguishes between wisdom here and maddening folly, as he says in verse 17. And he wants to know the effect of both of them. What happens when you make wise choices in life and what happens when you do foolish actions and activities? And do these provide meaning? Do they lead to happiness? And as he thought about this, his conclusion was this. Well, life under the sun is an unhappy business that God has given man to be busy with. All the knowledge and all the wisdom of the world is not a path to ultimate happiness because it's not the path to ultimate purpose or meaning in life. And so he says in verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. There's that word vanity that we talked about last week that is repeated often in the book of Ecclesiastes. It it speaks to the futility, the sense of emptiness that nothing really matters. It's senseless. And you get that with this new expression he brings in, a striving after the wind. And the word he uses for striving is really interesting. It's the same word used for shepherding, for leading and guiding and gathering sheep. Imagine trying to shepherd the wind. It would be impossible You cannot drive the wind before you. It goes where it wants to go. It is futile. The wind will always escape you. You cannot catch it in your hands. And so trying to find meaning and purpose and happiness simply through knowledge and understanding is like the striving after the wind. It just can't be done. You're chasing after something that cannot be caught. 
And so the preacher offers up a proverb to explain why that is the case. That proverb is in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, there are crooked things in this world. Things that are bent. Things that are not the way they are originally intended to be when God designed it. And that is because this world is suffering under the curse of sin. That is why there is evil in this world. So there are crooked things. Things that are bent. Things that are not straight. Things that are not smooth. And as humans, we try through all of our experiential wisdom and knowledge to try to straighten those things out. And every time we do, we find it just doesn't work. What is crooked cannot be made straight. We are dealing with the same problems people have always dealt with. And this leads to perplexing questions. Things that we just can't understand. Why do things happen the way they do? Why does a tornado destroy one side of the street but leave the other side untouched? It just seems crooked and bent and out of shape. Why do some people get sick while others do not when they were all gathered at the same birthday party and took the same precautions? There are things we don't understand even with our vast learning and experience and knowledge and because of that, we are unable to straighten out those crooked things. Knowledge of this world only goes so far. It can't smooth out what is rough. It cannot bend that which is curved. And so the preacher throws up his hands in the air after trying to find happiness through all his wisdom and his knowledge and his learning. And he says, for in wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Indeed, the more you learn and try to understand, the heavier the burden on your heart becomes. There is much frustration, much unhappiness in knowledge. And so the preacher then turns to a new experiment. He says, I didn't find happiness. I didn't find that meaning I was looking for, that purpose in my knowledge, even though I had more than others before me. So let me try pleasure. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, when we hear that word pleasure, we might be tempted to think that the Bible portrays it always in the negative sense, as if it's something evil and sinful. But that is not the case. Pleasure or enjoyment is created by God. We see that in this text. We'll observe that later. But the, the, the pursuit of pleasure then is, is not a sinful thing in, of, in and of itself. But the problem is when pleasure or the pursuit of pleasure becomes our, the object of our happiness where we're trying to find our purpose, our meaning in pleasure itself. And that is precisely the test this preacher wants to engage and experiments that he describes here in chapter 2. And the first 
few verses, three through eight, they all describe the activities in which he engages to try to find happiness and meaning in this pursuit of pleasure. And then in verses nine through 11, he gives us a summary, a report of his experiment, of his findings, what he learned. So he says, first, I looked to wine. I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun during the few days of their life. So wine here isn't just drinking of wine. It also speaks to feasting, of enjoying banquets, of, of partying. That's what's implied here. And it's not necessarily even in an evil overindulgent sense that he is talking about it. Now, it may be, but he does say here that he is still being guided by wisdom. He says, hey, I I want to indulge, but I don't want to overindulge. I want to indulge. I want to understand, is this wine going to give me some happiness? Is this banquet, this food, this feast that we're enjoying together, is this going to give me some happiness, some sense of enjoyment and pleasure. But he says, I also want to lay hold on folly. Now, it may not be that he himself will engage in folly, but he wants to understand what happens if you give yourself over completely in this overindulgent life. See, folly or foolishness is a theme you often see in wisdom literature. It's, it's an activity or a lifestyle that goes outside of God's decreed law, as he explains in the scriptures, and the established order that he has made into this world by design through his creation. And so folly or foolishness is the abuse of his good gifts, his good creation, his provision. And it always, when we do that, leads to negative consequences and suffering and pain and hardship. So the the preacher engages in these things, guided by wisdom, trying to understand, is there joy here? Is this the joy, the enjoyment, the true happiness that gives me meaning and purpose. After wine and drink and food, he turns to creativity, to building things, industry. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. So he fills his resume, his kingly resume, with all the things a king would want to build and desire to build. Big things, beautiful things, things that might others say, wow, this is amazing. Look at this. He doesn't just build one house. You see that? He says, I built houses. I had more than one. One by the lake, one in the mountains, one in the city. And he built parks and gardens, and vineyards, things that not only he can enjoy, but others can enjoy as well. He's trying to carve out a little paradise on earth. And so this is a pursuit of happiness, of trying to find ultimate meaning in industry and creativity. And of course, his parks and his fruit trees and his pools, they will provide for others. 
He's going to try to make the world better, to make those crooked things straight. He will reclaim the desert, provide shade and water and beauty and culture and enjoyment for people. And surely this will give him joy if he can make the world better. There must be some sense of meaning and purpose in doing that from all of this building and all of this beauty. In verses 7 through 8, the preacher king adds this time, the accumulation of many possessions to his pursuit of pleasure and happiness. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any other who had been before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, to the light of sons of men. In the excess here is evidence. He speaks of acquiring slaves, which of course is an abuse of the image of God. He's exercising power over people that he ought not. He is craving power. Does power give pleasure? Will it give me happiness? Will it give me meaning? He also gathers to himself herds and flocks, signs of great wealth in the ancient Near East, and silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces, he says. Were these acquired through lawful means, or did, did he conquer them? Or did he negotiate his way to the top of the ladder to be the high king over many vassals? The point, again, is to show that he had power. He had acquired possessions and control and influence that no one else had as he's trying to pursue pleasure and understand happiness and find meaning. He also mentions entertainment because he acquires both singers, men and women, And then he says many concubines as well. So he spares no expense. Only the best singers will do. He wants to see if if the beauty of art will give lasting delight to his soul. And of course, he adds to all this sex as well as he had many concubines engaging in the illicit passions of his heart. And again, all these things he does with the idea that this will make me finally happy. Or will it make me happy? Or will I continue to be unhappy and thus not find purpose and meaning? And at the end of that experiment, he lays out his findings, his summary, his reports. Did he find happiness? Well, he says that he found Some sense of enjoyment, at least, initially. In verses 9 and 10, he says, I I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure. I found some pleasure, some enjoyment in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. I had everything my heart wanted. Wisdom and knowledge, pleasure, an understanding of the world, education, power, possessions, art, entertainment, money, prestige, influence, sex, houses, gardens, food and drink. All of it provided some enjoyment. But that's all it provided. 
and it didn't last. That was my reward. Because he looks back upon his empire that he had built and it was all sand and mud and it crumbled. His hedonistic experiments didn't last. He says in verse 11, I considered all my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, senseless, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained, no profit under the sun. It was futile. In the end, all the power, possessions, and pleasure didn't provide that ultimate purpose for which he longed. Happiness from pleasure is just a vapor, just a breath. It doesn't last. There's, there's no permanence to it. And it can't make a crooked world straight. And so to have everything even at the end of your life is to have nothing. And the interesting thing is, you read what he describes here and you realize people are no different than Solomon, the preacher king. I mean, we have so much available to us. Knowledge is just a click away. It's right here. You can find almost anything you want to find in the world today. And we pursue pleasure in ways the preacher couldn't even imagine. Indeed, that seems to be the goal of most of the world. Like the preacher, we are trying to build a paradise here on earth, a new garden of Eden for ourselves. And we do it through the same things that Solomon experimented with. Our work and power, creativity, art, money, passion, prestige, influence. The goal of this new paradise was the same as with Solomon's happiness. For in that happiness, we hope to find ultimate purpose and meaning. But just like with the preacher king, all of our efforts is empty and meaningless at the end of the day. The pleasure that we find never lasts. And we become so unhappy, so dissatisfied with life. You see, people are unhappy with life because they are trying to make a paradise on earth without the very thing that made Eden a paradise in the first place. Eden was a paradise not simply because of the beauty of its trees and fruit and and nature alone, but because of the presence of the Creator who dwelt there and fellowshiped with man and woman. We want the pleasures of Eden without the provider of those pleasures. We want unrestricted and unhindered pleasure simply for the sake of pleasure itself because we think that will make us happy and it never works. So we continue to be unhappy because at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, all people, both those who are wise And those who are foolish walk the very same life and and find the same thing at the end, that great equalizer, death. So the preacher says in verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can 
the men do who comes after the king only what was has already been done. You see, he's questioning here. Is there any advantage then to actually having wisdom, again, experiential wisdom, over folly? And his initial conclusion is that there's certainly some advantage to living life according to wisdom rather than foolishness. He says in verse 13, 14, I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. See, the point here is that the wise person sees where he is headed. He understands what awaits him at the end of life. And so he tries to live his life in a way to be ready for that end. So he's not walking in darkness. But the fool doesn't care. To him, he just goes on doing whatever he wants to his heart's content, irregardless of what is there at the end. That's the idea of having vision, of having eyes in your head. And he said there's some profit to that from having a vision and understanding what awaits at the end of life, the reality of death, that great equalizer between the foolish man and the wise man. That is the same event that happens to all of them. He says in verse 16, for Of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So he says there's some advantage here in understanding that, but in the end, is there really? Because death comes for all of us. And the wise sees this, he understands, he tries to prepare, he tries to seek happiness in his life under the sun. He understands that life is short and the foolish doesn't see it. He pursues his happiness as well, but with a complete disregard for the end of his life. And as a result, he stumbles through his life from one failure to the next, walking in the dark. But at the end, they are both overtaken by death's dark shadow. The same event happens to them all. And death then seems to destroy the distinction between the wise and the foolish. It reveals much. And in the end of the pursuit of happiness and meaning through knowledge and pleasure, you come to the same point at the very end. And as the preacher thought about that, he in brutal honesty says in verse 17, So I hated life. What is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after wind. This doesn't make sense. Here we are back to chapter one. It doesn't make sense. He hated life. He had this heaviness, this burden that he could not carry. Life was just too hard. It has a source of grief. It, it is those crooked things again continue to exist and I can't seem to fix them. I can't latch on to lasting happiness and I can't find ultimate purpose. And he continues as a lament in verse 20. He says, I turned about and and gave up my heart to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And that person might not be wise. They might be a fool. This is also vanity and a great evil. 
So in this life under the sun, happiness really does seem elusive. It is wearisome trying to get it. It's like trying to shepherd the wind. If happiness is the goal of the human life, if that is the only thing that is there, then life really is futile. Is there any advantage then to living life in this world under the sun, even as believers? Should we just kind of plod along in despair, waiting for future hope? Well, the answer is no. And we see that here in this text. Last week, we remembered that God is above the sun, that he does make all things new. Yet being above the sun, he sent his son and he came down and lived life in the flesh on this earth under the sun, experiencing all the same things that we find futile and senseless. And then he died, but he lived again on the third day. And because of that, in Him, we do find meaning and purpose. We do find that there is an everlasting joy. But the question that is raised here by the preacher's experimentation to find happiness and his lament of how it escapes him because of the inescapable reality of death is this. Is is there any happiness? We understand there's happiness in Christ, but is there any happiness to be found right now in this life under the sun? Do we have anything to live for? And the answer is yes. There is something that can be enjoyed now. And here's why. Because God gives good things to his creation to enjoy so that in that enjoyment, they might ultimately enjoy him and find him. Verses 24 through 25, in closing, he says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find an enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? This is not a nihilistic creed of eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. It isn't nihilism, because there is a God who does give us things to enjoy in this life. He created this world for us. And that is why seeking pleasure in accordance to his law and his creation, what he has ordered, is a good thing. Eden itself was designed to give mankind joyful pleasure. And the things that we have in this world are created by God as a provision, a common grace of his good hand to give us some enjoyment, some happiness, even though it may not last, in this life under the sun. And when used in wisdom, not foolishly, they do help us through this life. Notice the preacher doesn't say here, eat and drink, because that's all that exists in life. If he did say that, that would be nihilism. That, that is the rejection of meaning and value and the existence of objective truth. But he says this. He doesn't say don't eat, or eat and drink because that's all there is. He says eat and drink because that is what there is. God has provided you these things, so find enjoyment in them. They are God's good gifts. They have been given, not earned. They have been provided. They are not a reward. 
In other words, they come from God's grace. For it is God's grace that always provides for us. When he created Eden and he put Adam and Eve into it, he gave them meaningful work to do. He provided them with food and drink in abundance. He gave them these things for their enjoyment, for their pleasure. And after the judgment of the flood, God tells Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I I give you the green plants. I give you everything. In the wilderness, the Lord provides for his people, Israel, with meat and manna to enjoy. And when Jesus took on flesh and became a man, he sat at meals. He ate and he drank and he provided food for his disciples. Even after his resurrection, in that new body, that glorified body that awaits, that shows us what we shall be like when we are made like him, in the new heavens and earth when Christ returns. You know what he did? He ate and he drank. He sat at a a fried fish meal for breakfast on the lakeshore with his disciples in John 21. And so God does give us good gifts and we can find some enjoyment in this life under the sun. We don't have to be ungrateful and despondent. We can enjoy those simple pleasures. It is a good thing to do. Now, they are not the end of themselves. We know that. But in grateful thanksgiving for God's gracious provision, we live our lives here. And it is those little joyous provisions that God gives us which point us to a greater provision, the provision of His own Son. You see, God's common grace is designed, its intent is to direct our gaze upward to the saving grace of the gospel of Christ. No life under the sun, it is not permanent. And the things we inquire and the pleasures we enjoy, they do not last, but they are still pleasures and they still bring enjoyment when we partake of them according to God's lawful design. But they do point us, though, to that thing that lasts forever the joy that is ours in Christ. You see, the thing is this. We can't make crooked things straight. That's very clear. We cannot master this life, nor death. But we can know the master of life and death, who is our God through Christ our Lord. And because of that, we can enjoy those things He gives us. For it is He who makes the crooked things straight. It is He who levels the hills and makes the rough places a plain for the coming of the Lord, the coming of His salvation and His grace. And what that means is this, is that we need to stop striving to find happiness simply for the sake of happiness in both the pursuit of knowledge and pleasure, but instead find it in the good God who gives us these good things. We know we cannot earn our happiness, but we can receive it through faith in His gracious hand. And so let us then lay aside this striving after the wind of trying to make the crooked things straight and let us instead rest in the grace and mercy of God, our Father, and our Lord, Jesus Christ.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed to us that this life that we have does have some measure of joy. And you give that to us because you are a good and gracious God. And so help us then to enjoy these things, not for enjoyment's sake alone, but that in enjoying them, we might find you and give you thanks and praise for all your good gifts to us. And Lord, above all, we give you thanks for that greatest gift that is Christ. But if there are those who know him not, who are trying to find their happiness in their pursuit of pleasure and possession and power and in gaining knowledge, that they would realize this is indeed futile, that happiness escapes them because they are looking to those things in and of themselves instead of looking to the one who gives them those things. So open their eyes and show them the truth, the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.